In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded and then each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, before I get started, happy Nowruz to everyone who is celebrating around the world. Um, something beautiful about Nowruz is no matter where you are on planet Earth, it's at the same moment that we celebrate. And of course, most importantly to our sisters and brothers in Iran, wishing you a happy Nowruz and hopeful that this year will be a good one for you and the country and that uh, we will continue to support you throughout this, this struggle towards a revolution and actually the book I'll talk about today is about the Iranian history and so I am hopeful for the Iranian future and what you will create um, before I get to that book the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's shows is real self-care by Pooja Lashman Lakshman real self-care a transformative program for redefining wellness by Pooja Lakshman. And uh, I looked at the introduction today, and it does seem like it's geared more towards women and self-care for women, but I myself would want to learn from it um, just as a human being. I'm sure I can relate to it, but also uh, working with women in my practice, I'm sure that could be helpful. But uh, already from the introduction, I like the theme that I'm seeing about the book about what real self-care is versus what we sometimes might think it is. So look forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is Understanding Iran by William R. Polk. Understanding Iran, everything, <clears throat> everything you need to know from Persia to the Islamic Republic, from Cyrus to Khamenei. And this book, so first I can say the author, William R. Polk, he uh, was in the U.S. government for many years in different capacities, but notably he was in the Kennedy administration, and he even was part of the Crisis Management Committee during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that was a, a big moment in really world history, but also U.S. history, and what's notable about that event was actually that it could have been bigger and worse, that we could have been very close or we were on the brink of nuclear attacks and nuclear war, but um, it, thankfully it was averted during that time. So it's one of those uh, incidents that it's more notable because of what didn't happen and what was prevented rather than what ended up happening. And he also was a professor uh, at points in his life as well at the University of Chicago. Um, and so he, he was very involved in some aspects that are related to the book or history that he covers in the book, which which I'll get into. And so to begin with, um, I had gotten a few recommendations regarding this book. I'm always, um, as I read the books for the show, I try to read books that I think are interesting and relevant in some way to the things I talk about on the show. I also, of course, I'm trying to continue to educate myself and to learn. And so um, 
I know some things about Iranian history, but I'm very limited, and I, I'm aware of that. And I know that reading this one book just adds a bit to my understanding, as the title says, Understanding Iran. But um, reading any one book, one author, one historian will give you one perspective on the history and to really understand it. You're going to need to know and hear about multiple perspectives, and I'll share a bit about that as well. So for me, it was just to have some more understanding of the Iranian history, and this goes back several thousand years, um, looking at the formation of even becoming Iran. There's a chapter called that, but looking at the, the history of what Persia and Iran have been and what they've experienced. And so he wrote this book, the original um, book was released in 2009, and then in 2016, the one I have, there was a new introduction and afterward. So most of the book was the same, just a few um, part. These two parts of the book were different. Uh, but the book was written, as he puts it, because he thinks that if we don't understand anyone that we are, are dealing with or any, whether it's an individual or a group or society, if we don't really understand their history and what they've been through, that helps them become who they are today, it's going to be hard to understand how to interact with them, how to predict how they will respond to different things that we do or different things that we try to do. Uh, and he points out how a lot of the ways that the American government and other governments have tried to um, make these predictions. They do things like war games or different types of uh, exercises to try to figure out what might happen if we do this, how will our our um, opponent or the other person respond, the other side respond, things like game theory to try to figure out what's the best course of action. But as he says, we often assume the enemy, the opponent, will act just like we would. And if we don't understand them and their historical and cultural context, we will likely get it wrong. And we won't even realize how they might respond and how what we do or say or how we present things might be taken by them. Um, just like you go to someone's house and if you don't know about their customs and their culture, you could possibly act in ways that to them might even be disrespectful or um, not okay. So for example, you go to someone's house, often we'll ask, should I, should I take off my shoes or not? We don't know what's their custom in their home. And so if we just assumed we might, we might do something that they don't like, and that's, of course, on a much smaller scale than what we're talking about when different nations are trying to figure out what to do. And so when he wrote this book, War with Iran, which hasn't necessarily uh, gone away, that specter, but it might have been even stronger than he, you know, near the end of the book talks about things like how George W. Bush uh, declared Iran as part of the axis of evil, along with North Korea and Iraq, and that there was a lot of talk about bombing Iran. And so he thought that it's important for us to really understand what Iran has been through, how it's become the country that it is, the people, and everything that goes into that to better understand how to respond uh, to them. So I appreciated his that objective that he had because I, I think... Um, as I was saying at the top of the show, when you're reading history, sometimes we think, well, it's someone reporting the facts. But no matter what, when someone is giving a historical account, there's going to be biases, perspectives in there. There's no um, no way to talk about something without a perspective. It has to be looking at it from a certain way, not just a purely objective way. On top of that, of course, people can have 
agendas, which could be very much conscious, but also unconscious. They might not realize there's things they're trying to get across by sharing the story. And so, at least from the conscious, clear side, it seemed like his intentions were good, at least what he declared, which seemed to make sense based on how the book was and what I read about him. I take him at his word that this book was really to help us understand better um, Iran and the Iranian history, to understand who they are now, specifically as it seems his intention was to avoid war, to avoid conflict, that he didn't want that to be the solution or for that to be where we ended up um, through misunderstandings and, and doing things the wrong way. So I appreciated that. Um, he does mention meeting uh, Mohammad Reza Shah, actually, when he was in when he was serving in the American government and also when he's not. This is when William Polk was serving in the government. Um, and that, you know, and so when I read those parts, especially the whole time I recognized there's a perspective it's it's two things at the same time. One is that because he's actually met this individual, you get some insights that you might not get from the outside. So it could be interesting to hear what he might say about his interactions with him, what people in the government might have said or thought about him at that time. However, those are also going to be the parts that are going to be the most biased as well. So it's kind of paradoxical, but it's not necessarily that those two things can't both be true. So you might see some things or hear some things, but you have to also uh, take more of those parts with a bigger grain of salt that, well, if the person interacted with them, if they liked or disliked, or maybe that person made them look good or bad or things of that nature, of course, it's going to impact and influence how they describe that person and describe, of course, their interactions, but even what that individual did. So... um, I, of course, was aware of the perspective that he might have throughout the book, but especially when it got to those parts, I realized I was reading it a bit differently, that I was paying attention to what he was saying, but realizing that, okay, this is his account of things. It doesn't necessarily mean this is some kind of absolute truth. Um, And as you're noticing, I'm not getting into the details of the history, to, to be honest, for a few reasons. One is um, you know, the book is all history and it's a few hundred pages. It's actually shorter, but dense, 220 pages or so. Um, and also I'm not very proficient on it to explain it so well, to go through different things and say, this is the important part and this is not important. Um, and, and through reading this book, I learned a lot, but as I mentioned, have a lot to learn, but, um, there was looking at history of Iran where there's been so many, um, so much instability, so much invasion. And I must confess, sadly, um, reading the book, I came across um, Hulagu Khan, who was the grandson of Genghis Khan, who uh, did a lot of bad to the Persian people, Iranian people. And then his grandson was Hulagu Khan, at least that's how it was spelled in this book. Um, And he also uh, did a lot of bad to the people of Persia, at that time, and Hulagu is actually comes from Holaku, which then is Holakui, my last name, comes from that. So it's not a very uh, good omen or good sign as an Iranian to have that name. And then when I read uh, in the book, it was in such a long part, but a brief part about what he did. It was a little bit, um, yeah, it was interesting to say the least, but uh, kind of a reminder of the last name doesn't come from the best place, especially for Iranians or Persians. So there was this history, though, you see, of different 
groups invading and instability, so outside um, groups being seen with skepticism and, and paranoia, and of course coming to the more recent decades and seeing things like um, Prime Minister Mossadegh being taken out, basically a coup to get him out by the uh, American CIA and British MI6, really coming down to, especially for the British, uh, oil money and oil um, uh, access in Iran, the AIOC. So we can understand, and that also, as he puts it, might affect let the Iranian distrust of the West. And of course, that was stoked also during the revolution, something that's yeah, interesting and some of the chants I've heard from the people in Iran is that they say America is not our enemy or the outside is not our enemy. Our enemy is here, is within the country. So there is this paranoia, skepticism of the West, but there's also this recognition that um, it's easy to point the finger and say the enemy is on the outside and try to deflect from what the enemies or they themselves within are doing. So the book did give me some insights into some of the intricacies of the ancient history, but also the more recent history. I think the ancient history was, I was curious and reading it and learned a lot, but especially the more recent hundred plus years or so um, felt much more relevant to understanding the current situation and how things have developed to become the way that they are. So that was uh, important for me and I read those parts carefully. But as I mentioned, it also makes me recognize the need to supplement this with other historians and other perspectives because uh, you're always going to get some biases when you read someone's account of, of what's happened in a story, in a nation, whatever it might be. There's always going to be that perspective there. And I say that again, not suggesting that William R. Polk here had an agenda or was manipulating or doing anything nefarious or bad in writing this book. I do see that's appeared to have a very genuine good intention, but it's just the reality that there's always going to be multiple sides and explanations to a story. So I do find it a good book. Now, it's it was written in 2009, and so in those intervening 14 years, yes, in 2016, the introduction was added, a new introduction, and the afterward was um, revised, or maybe it was just added, I don't know if it was in the previous edition at all, to include what had happened in those inter seven years, but in those seven years, a lot has happened too, especially in this last year. So um, it did give a good history up into close to present day, but these recent years have really, uh, so much has happened there that it, to know what's going on now, you'd also have to look more into those aspects of the, the history and the present current events. But I do recommend it if you want to get, as I did, um, some more general knowledge about Iranian and Persian history to get a sense of how we got to where we are today. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Uh are you talking to me? Yes. Okay, uh, I would like to say hello to you and thank you for accepting my call. My pleasure. Uh, I have a question about uh, how to end the self-destructiveness cycle. Mm -hmm. um, I have been. I I will be glad if you have any uh, questions 
to answer any questions sure. of you about my background, my age. If you'd like to, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, you started with the topic of it and that itself we could get into, but if it does seem like it's something related to yourself. So we can definitely get into understanding you and what's going on for you. Self-destructive uh, behaviors, like any kind of behaviors, there's a, a huge range of what we can be talking about from uh, mild harm to more severe and also to how often and how uh, it affects the person as far as uh, dealing with that issue. So um, in some ways we can say everyone does some things that are harmful or not good for them, but there's definitely a huge range of what people might experience. So tell me about yourself, how how old you are and where you are in your life, and then from there we can get into the, the behavior that you're discussing. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'm calling from Iran, okay. and okay, nice. uh, I'm 28 years old, mm -hmm. and uh, actually I have the bachelor degree, and I'm willing to continue my uh, education right. and in the field of uh, linguistics and teaching English. And uh, I, actually I'm the fourth child of uh, the family, the last child, mm -hmm. like... Uh, I, so I mean, I mean the last child. Yes. So, um, and uh, my father um, is uh, used to uh, use some, take some drugs. I mean, um, opium. Mm -hmm. And uh, what else? Uh, I have some problems like uh, anxiety. Uh, I cannot call it a depression, but sometimes I feel down. And uh, actually, the situations that I have been in in the last two years for the military service uh, made me more anxious, and uh, I had to take some drugs of SSRIs. Okay. And uh, now I have ended, uh, I mean, yesterday, the taking all those drugs were, uh, was ended, and... Uh, Actually, what really uh, bothers me in life is that um, I cannot uh, focus on uh, and I cannot enter to a good relationship with uh, girl. So when I go back and uh, watch my relationships, I see that all of them were bad. And in the first place, I knew that they are not going to last for a long time, or my choice is not good, and uh, this will not um, have a happy ending. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> for now, example, and it was if I may, some, just quickly, if I may ask, is this the self-destructive behavior you're talking about, or this is something separate? No, uh, yeah, I would like to know how I can get rid of this uh, self-destructive cycle. Okay. Because... Um, you know, I have been studying some books of psychology. I um, pursue some programs like your program, uh, your father's program, and uh, anything that I have, I have access to. But, you know, the, they only say that you have this problem. You, For example, you are a self-destructive uh, person, or, I don't know, uh, you suffer from self-esteem. But I don't know how to really end that cycle. Yeah. And um, actually, I have some idea, but I don't know if it's true or not, if it works or not. 
uh, at the moment, I'm reading a book called Reinventing Your Life by Dr. Uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Young, I think, Jeffrey Young. And uh, it says that uh, all we can do is to um, be aware of what we are doing and uh, by wisdom and by uh, consciousness, we can end it. But uh, I would like to have a more precise answer yeah. from you. Well, you know, you um, you bring up a good point. A lot of what we can often do in the psychology or the self-help, it'll say this is a problem, and you know, but fixing it or what to do about it often that's that is a really hard part. And a lot of times, it's not something that we easily can fix or change. Doesn't mean we can't. Um, it just usually means it's slow and takes a lot of time. You know, and we you will see a lot of people whether they're in self-help or on Instagram or whatever it might be, if they write books or put out things that make it seem like it's easy, that if you have this problem, you just do this and it's going to go away or here are four easy steps to fix your self-esteem problem. But really, these deeper type of issues are not going to be so simple. And so you're right in a way to say that often we'll, you can identify the problem to some degree, um, but then what to do about it can be really hard. Or it might seem really general, go to therapy or you know, work on yourself or something that might feel like, I, I don't know how to do that or what that exactly means and to get some kind of a result. But the first step really is, I mean, I was saying that that's what the books might do and I'm going to do some of that myself with you is really we have to understand what a problem is before we can do anything about it. And not just in a surface way of like, okay, I have self-destructive um, behaviors or I'm having these bad relationships, but going a little bit deeper into that of of the why and also what do they look like even more detailed, but why does this, why might I, I choose this? So one thing I can tell you right off the bat, and I want to hear more about your experience and also you mentioned briefly about your, your father and also being the fourth child, but your childhood, but very often people will choose relationships that they know will end because it's a lot safer. So we we have a fear of getting hurt, a fear of um, intimacy, a fear of commitment, a fear of even relationships. If what we experienced in childhood or what, and what we saw between our parents and also between us and our parents, if that was painful, if that was hurtful in, in some ways, in, in extreme ways especially, then we're going to be afraid of getting close to people. But the problem is we also have this human need to be close to people. And so what people often will do is it's kind of this in-between, often unconscious, and that's why we want to become more conscious of it, of starting relationships with people where they know it's not going to work out because then it's safe. It has an expiration date. I know it's not going to force me to be stuck with this person, and that's how it can sometimes feel like being stuck, uh, and, and I can get out of this. So it's kind of like we're going in and going out, pushing ourselves towards them, but pulling ourselves away at the same time. So just from what you said at a more general level, there could be something there where if we try to understand you and what you're going through, it might be that you want to be close, but you're also afraid to be close at the same time. Does that feel like uh, it's related to what you're going through? Uh, actually, yes, because uh, when I look at look back at my previous relation, all my relationships, mm -hmm. um, it was like um, breaking up, and in one relationship, I mean, with a, a specific person, 
and having too many breaks, breakups, and have just uh, being together for a few months, and then break up, and then uh, be together. And this cycle ended, uh, for example, for two years, three years, or five, four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I had uh, this kind of relationship uh, for four of them. And uh, the last one was um, ended um, a few days ago. Mm. So it was when I uh, decided to use um, the consciousness and to be logical about it. And uh, so, uh, like I said, we had uh, we have been in relationship for uh, like two or three years. And uh, it was uh, she was a classmate, online classmate uh, from other city, and we only met twice. The last uh, meeting was about a, f- um, a month ago, and but we were uh, really in love. Although uh, she was married with two children and two years, three years older than me, mm-hmm. and uh, but um, we loved each other so much our sexual relationship in that two uh, times was really great and uh, it was like a kind of um, how to say uh, very uh, good um, relationship it was the best of all the best relationship of my uh, entire life but um you know, when I look at other people to see uh, that they are younger than me, like 20 years or 22 years or 25, that they are um, with someone or, and they are in a um, serious relationship will, which will end and or had ended in marriage. Or, for example, they are, there are some of my friends my age that have two children or one child. So um, I don't know what's wrong with me for not being like them and uh, choosing the right person. You know? Well, well, w- w- what we have to look at is you're saying there does have to be something wrong with you if you're not like them. We have to see do you want what they have and what what they are experiencing. Now, what what you shared is is in a way exactly what I'm talking about when you say the most beautiful relationship, the best relationship I had was with someone who was married with two kids and lived far away from me and I only saw twice all of that points to that it wasn't as real as you think it is or that it was safer for you to let yourself get involved and let your heart get into this because you knew it had to end and that safety allowed for you to feel even more for this person than someone who was completely available and you could see regularly and you could potentially be with for the future, that anxiety would not let you as freely love that person and let them love you. So you could tell yourself, oh, it's just my bad luck that the person that is so good for me happens to be married and has two kids. And that could be the case, but my thought would be it's more likely that because she was married and had two kids, it made it easier for you to let her be the best person for you, to let yourself fall for her. And even when you say our sexual relationship to encounters, it's more of a sexual encounter than sexual relationship. But there could have been, again, that same feeling that you can let yourself go, 
Of course, here there's also the element of the forbidden, which is going to heighten the sexual feeling. It doesn't mean that's what you really have. It's because of the context of being in a in a relationship that you shouldn't be in that makes it feel even better. But all of those things point to something within you that is afraid to actually get close to someone. So when you say my friends who might be already married or have and also have kids, why am I not like them? We can try to look at what makes you afraid of that. So um, we can ask if you want that, which is part of it, but you could be afraid of the thing you want, and that could lead to us doing some of these types of things of choosing uh, the wrong kinds of relationships. And by wrong, I mean the ones that can't have a future, that are not realistic. Because what I'm hearing, what you had with her was mostly a virtual relationship, texting, talking from far away, You only saw each other twice. So, so much of it is happening in your mind rather than an actual relationship with her. It's not to say you didn't share a lot of moments. I'm sure you talked so much. You might have opened up to her and she opened up to you. But something was in the way that didn't allow for this to be as genuine of a relationship that we would actually want for you or that I would want for you. But the important thing is, do you want it yourself and do you want to create that? Now, we're at a commercial break, but I want us to continue the conversation. And after the break, we can talk a bit more going back to your own childhood. You briefly mentioned your father, but looking at your early relationships and the relationship of your parents and what you saw and how that might have some impacts on on what you're looking on looking for in a relationship. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. Sure. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back before the break. We were with the caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Uh, yeah, All thank right. you, doctor. Sure. So as I mentioned before the break, um, you were talking about your relationships. You, you described yourself as self-destructive, that you um, look at all the relationships you've been in and they don't have a great outcome or they... And even you said like there's a lot of breaking up and getting back together. The more recent one that just ended a few days ago, uh, the individual was already married with children and in another city. Um, But I wanted to talk more about your own family background and your own experience with relationships, not necessarily romantic, but your own relationship history in that way. So tell me more. You mentioned your father having um, an issue with, with drugs, with opium, but tell me more about your childhood experience and how your parents were together and how they were with you. Okay, uh, but I would like to uh, ask for permission for mentioning uh, a few uh, information about uh, myself, which I thought during the commercial break, which I think may be useful to you. Absolutely, go ahead. So, uh, since I've been always interested in psychology, I've uh, taken two times, uh, PI2, and... uh, in the last one, which has been taken a few months ago, like two or three months ago, uh, the psychopathic deviation was high. Okay. But I think it was the influence of, like I said, I've been in military service during that time. And, <clears throat> sorry, I've been uh, through a lot of um, bad people, like... Um, uh, sick people, mentally sick, and the psychopaths in um, that time that uh, they just wanted to uh, force us to do uh, things to like him, humiliate us, and uh, so on. So I think mm-hmm. that psychopathic deviation high 
uh, was only for uh, being in that um, because uh, being in that uh, like environment and uh, because I'm against a lot of laws that uh, are in Iran mm-hmm. for example compulsory uh, hijab or so on so that I'm just telling that because uh, I'm not uh, uh, peop- other people say I'm kind and caring uh, guy. Okay, so, and, that, that's um, interesting. If I may comment on that, I you know I'm just getting to to know you in this conversation, so I don't know how accurate that was. But you brought up an important point with any kind of uh, testing, even IQ testing, but personality testing for sure. That uh, it's very much impacted by culture and cultural factors. Even here in the United States, they've done, uh, sometimes they'd find that black males will will score higher on paranoia. So it could seem like we're, you would look at the test and say, oh, this person is paranoid. But then you recognize that living as a black man in the United States is more scary and risky, or it would make sense to be um, feel more at a threat of authority and people in power. So it's not actual unhealthy paranoia. It's a different experience that will show up on this test as paranoia because the test was made or was tested initially on certain people more than others. So there always are these factors we have to be aware of when we're doing testing, personality testing, that culture plays a big part. That, for example, as you're saying, it probably does ask questions related to following the rules, following the law with this assumption that the laws are just but if you're living in a country where the the laws and many of them are very unjust it, it could make sense you might mark i don't agree with the laws or i would go against the laws and it could seem that that would trigger the antisocial personality or the psychopathic personality traits but it wouldn't necessarily be the case so i i don't know in your case what's exactly happening but i could see your point is an important one to be mindful of when we look at things like personality tests, IQ tests, whatever it might be, that culture plays a big part. Um, so you took that MMPI, you said, at two different times? Uh, I couldn't hear the, the last uh, sentence, sorry. Oh, that's okay. I said you, you, you took this MMPI two different times? Yeah, actually, uh, the first one was uh, taken by a psychology student uh, during uh, my college years, and it was uh, like four years ago. And the only thing which was uh, obvious in that was anxiety. Okay. Yeah. So a PD was not high or other factors. Yeah. And uh, I find myself a bit skeptical or cynical in others' eyes. So because I don't trust easily, okay. especially in relationships, for example, because I've been lied to too many times in mm. uh Maybe I'm choosing the liar people for relationship, but uh, actually I've been lied to a lot of uh, too many times, so uh, people might find me a bit cynical. Mm-hmm. And uh, as al- as long as I remember, I used to stay up late at night and sleep until, for example, uh, noon, and. Uh, I don't know if it's if it's important to this subject or about me or not, but uh, I use I see I watch porn a lot, and especially when I feel bad, 
you know, it's kind of relief, you know. Uh-huh. When you say a, when a, you say a lot, what do you mean? Uh, actually, for example, it used to be uh, like masturbation mm-hmm. with porn uh, combination. So it used to be uh, one or twice a day, but now it's like four or five times a week. Okay. Um, and you said it yourself when you feel bad, so you're aware of that, you know, it, masturbation and pornography can be used as a type of drug or any kind of behavior that we do to escape a feeling or to get away from some feeling or to feel something different. Um, but yeah, it could itself then, like any other behavior or substance, create its own issues or problems that we can experience. Okay. And all of this, yeah, they might not all be related. The porn can definitely impact our relationships and that's um, something that can be harmful, not just to the sexual relationship, but to the romantic aspect as well. Um, but the other things you mentioned about the sleep gives me some sense of you and your your personality or things that you experience day to day. And the trust part that you mentioned or about lying, you know, it's another one of those words we throw out trust issues. Oh, I have trust issues. But really when we try to look at it, we understand if your experience has been that people were not trustworthy, then your brain as a predicting machine, when it interacts with a new person, unfortunately, will assume that this next person will also lie or will uh, not tell the truth and be untrustworthy. And that can be difficult to overcome. Really, the the main way we can overcome something like that is we have to risk trusting again, being aware of who we trust. And it doesn't mean we trust 100% all at once. We slowly give that person more and more um, ability to either hurt us or affect us in whatever way. And then we hopefully will get people in our life who show us that people can be trusted, but it takes risking. There's no, you know, we're going to make you forget what happened, or if you talk about it now, you won't be afraid to trust anyone again. It only really happens through relationships. But just that aspect itself would make us think you're likely to prefer someone who's a bit far away, in this case physically and also not available due to their relationship status of being married. But that was more some general things about right now. Uh, going back to the question of your childhood and your parents, can you tell me a bit about them? Um, yeah, actually, my parents' relationship uh, has been never good. Okay. So actually, now at the moment, they are not having a good relationship. And uh, my father, um, actually, maybe, uh, I mean, the uh, my friend who... Um, took the test who uh, gave the test to me told me that um, you have problems with authorities and that authority can be your father in the first place mm-hmm. and I said yeah it's true and um, uh, it's true that I have been I have uh, been experiencing problems with him and you know my father is not is a person who is uh, not happy and uh, you cannot find him happy at any time and he um, nags all the time and uh, he's uh, like make you feel bad about yourself make you feel guilty and uh, now it's my mother who has the upper hand so he tries she tries to like make a revenge of him from the past so because my father is retired now and at home and uh, like uh, she tries to uh, convince all of us all of uh, four of us to um, like convince 
us to think uh, like her. But uh, in my childhood, um, actually, my father uh, used to go for missions for like uh, three or four times a month, and um, that last uh, last uh, like uh, I don't know three or one week, three days or one week. And uh, when when you say missions, what do you mean? But like going out of city for work. Okay, for work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, actually, uh, it was my siblings around me all the time, and uh, like I had two uh, older sisters and one um, older brother uh, with the difference of one year. And uh, I used to fight, we used to fight each other all the time. And uh, it's been like one, a few times that, like one year, less than one year, that we are having a good relationship with him. Uh, but before that, we d- didn't like even talk to each other a lot, and uh, it was like my sister who grew me up, and uh, you know I think that I'm not responsible enough in life because uh, I had my siblings supporting me, and my parents also, my mother, when I whenever I needed money or things like that, it was ready for me. So. Uh, that is also uh, one point. And uh, last night I was thinking about, I was trying to remember my uh, bad memories of childhood. So there was, for example, uh, the time that I, f- uh, feel, I was feeling that no one really loves me. So I decided to hide in the um, bathroom uh, whenever uh, when my parents and my family coming at home. And to see if they really uh, ask for me, mm-hmm. for example, uh, where are you, where is uh, our son? And I saw that they didn't. Hmm. Or How old were you uh, in that when you did like, that? Like, uh, I don't know, six, seven, mm-hmm. or even younger, but uh, less than ten, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and a lot of, of course, kids always are wanting more attention from their parents. So it's not, I don't want to necessarily say it's all of that, but that experience, it could show some sense of feeling invisible. And so you're saying, if I'm, you know, if you don't see me, will you remember me? You know, if I'm not actually in the, there, will you remember me? And unfortunately, you know, that also shows there was a feeling of loneliness that you maybe got used to as well. So, um, you were around people all the time, but somehow you felt lonely or disconnected and you might be used to that feeling and still you might connect in these ways that's a little bit more distant, but not actually that close because somehow you got got comfortable. And so, yeah, being the, the baby of the family, you're saying you feel like you always got taken care of or uh, maybe that wasn't good in some ways that it was made you uh, too easy, things too easy on you, and that could even impact how we approach the responsibility of a relationship of, of someone being reliant on us and someone um, expecting us to be their partner too. But just in the brief of what you shared there, there was, you said their relationship was not good. You get into, didn't get into the details of how bad it was. You're saying now things have reversed with your father being retired. Your mom has more of the upper hand and is putting him down and wants you and your siblings to see him negatively as well or see her side of the story now that probably she's the good one and he's the bad one or something like that. Um, But doesn't get a sense of a a good feeling about relationships and those experiences. So there could be the sense that it's easier to be 
alone. And I have more control when I'm alone. Even something like pornography, many people do watch it, so it's not to say every one of them will have anxiety, but there's something comforting about, okay, I'm going to experience my sexual pleasure in a way that's totally in my control and totally separate from anyone else. I don't need anyone else to rely on anyone else. There's something very safe about that. Um, you know, we're at another commercial break, and I do want to continue our conversation. I know it's late where you are, but if, you, if you're no, up to it, to. yeah, let's keep, let's keep talking after the break. So we'll put you on hold and we'll talk after the break, okay? All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yeah, hello. Doctor. Hello. Thank okay. You so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Appreciate you uh, calling and staying on this late uh, where you are, especially. You know, I wanted to change gears now. I do. There's so much more we can explore about your family and your experience of relationships that you're talking about. But coming to to the present and looking at what you want. So, what is it that you think you are looking for or you want when it comes to your romantic life, your relationship life? Uh. Actually, I would like to um, meet someone who is uh, attractive enough, like physically and uh, uh, with a high IQ, because um, I've passed the IQ test and I, uh, Wessler test, and I obtained uh, 117. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, as intelligent as I am, and uh, like, to have somebody with me to love her and to uh, have her for a lifetime and to make a family, to start a family with her and have uh, children. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's uh, what I want, a, li okay. a peaceful relationship with no ups and downs. You know? Okay, so you said a you want them to be physically attractive, you'd like for them to be intelligent, you'd like to have a life partner to... Um, create a family with now that last part I can I can understand it when we say ups and downs we don't want huge ups and downs but every relationship has to have ups and downs if it's being real so we have to accept some level and some degree of ups and downs if we're going to have a close relationship with someone it's true yeah by ups and downs I mean uh, breaking up like yeah. my uh, previous Experience. Got it. So, yeah, that's that could be different. You know, ups and downs is different from significant instability, which is what you're talking about. Like, you know, on, off, break up, get together. That's different from what we would think of as ups and downs in a healthy relationship where there will be parts where you argue more or you feel closer, a little more distant. Things happen in the course of a relationship. Now, tell me more about when you think of a good, just the relationship part. You mentioned some of it about loving and not having those big ups and downs. But what is it you think of when you think of this is why I would like to have a partner? What comes to your uh, mind? Actually, the, the most important thing for me is uh, to not to be alone. Mm -hmm. I know it's not uh, true, and um, it's a feeling that, uh, I mean, uh, we should not feel lonely, and being with someone does not uh, make us... Uh, not feel lonely but uh, actually when I'm uh, alone uh, when, when I'm with no one I start to go uh, like texting other girls 
and I have a few gears around always to mm-hmm. uh, for the breakup times, you know, yeah. in order to avoid being alone. So uh, I just don't want to be alone and to have be in contact with someone who loves me and whom I love. And uh, I, I think, yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you you brought up both aspects of it that it's. Of course, understandable. We don't want to be alone, but being by ourselves doesn't mean we feel lonely, even if we are alone. Um, but you've noticed that when you are out of a relationship, you quickly turn your attention to these other women that it seems like are more of a casual type of dating that give you attention, affection, or something just to fill up that space so you're not alone. And, um, as hard as it may be, I would encourage you to allow yourself to be alone more. So mm-hmm. those, if you're telling me what I'm looking for is a more serious relationship, then talking to those people is only going to get in the way of that. And also it'll get in the way of you really feeling what's there. I know you're saying you don't want to feel that feeling, but I would encourage you to go into that lonely feeling to understand it better. And, you know, because... We've only talked a short time, but you mentioned the story. When you say that, it reminds me of you in, in that closet waiting for someone to come and just no one is coming. And so um, no one coming is a very scary, sad feeling when you're there. And so you might be afraid that if I stay in the dark, no one will come to get me. So I have to make sure I just stay connected to someone, get a little bit of light in, even if it's not what I'm looking for, rather than being completely alone. So I often work with people or talk to people and they're saying, well, I'll date people casually and, you know, and then when the right person comes along, I'll marry them, but I'm going to keep these other people around in the meantime. And very often when we do that, we don't actually look for the right person or create the space for that more right relationship because we're we're staying occupied in this place. And also, as I was saying, I want you to know what that loneliness is. Understand it even better. What is it that you are afraid of? Because as I was saying, what is becoming more clear is that you're afraid of being alone, but you're also afraid of being with someone. And so it puts you in this space of talking to these people in a casual way or creating a relationship that is um, doesn't really have a future or possibility or even the possibility to spend a lot of time together. You're saying it was two, three years, but you saw each other two times. I'm sure you were in communication a lot, but you only saw each other two times, which you know makes it that it was probably safer in a way too. So you're with someone but you're also not with them that unfortunately is the safe place for you and what you'll have to do is you'll have to push through that into the discomfort of being closer to someone and risking being around them more now one thing i'll also add is uh, you said something in the i don't know i know we've been on for a little bit together about using your logic about this breakup a few days ago and um, I think when it comes to relationships, we, we need our logic, but we also need our emotions. But especially for you, something you'll have to be aware of is we could say that your radar is a bit off when it comes to relationships and who you choose to be uh, or to be in a relationship with or who you're attracted to. Unfortunately, it's a little bit off. Um, so when you find yourself attracted to someone or a situation, you really have to pause and reflect on, is this part of my pattern? Is this like the others? Is there a way that this relationship also, 
I already know couldn't work out or has an expiration date or I can't get that close to them because we know that that will be what you'll find yourself attracted to more naturally. And so you might have to stop yourself a bit um, without letting yourself get too into that person because your radar will take you in the wrong direction. And often what people find is, you know, when we hear love songs and movies and poetry, we, we not talk about being head over heels and this crazy feeling we feel for someone, which it's not to say that's all bad, but what we have to be aware of is that when our radar is off, usually the people that make us feel that way are the worst people for us. And so we sometimes have to be aware that the person that might be the right one for us might not get us as head over heels and excited. And so you maybe even think, oh, are they good for me? Am I actually into them? And it's not to say find someone where you feel like you're settling or you feel like you're bored, but that it might not feel like this passion that you think you're supposed to be looking for. That passion might take you in the wrong direction. Um, So it's just something I would want you to be mindful of when you're looking for someone, that you have to be a bit careful, slow yourself down, check in with yourself. We want to make sure we don't repeat the same patterns because if we don't think about it, you will repeat the same pattern, maybe in a different way. Yeah. I would like to interrupt you and sure. ask you a few questions about what you said. Uh, you said that uh, it won't feel uh, the same, the same like depth of what I had experienced. Or I would say, but instead of depth, I would say excitement or p- that intensity might not be there, especially at the beginning. You might build it, but that beginning part oh, might yeah. not be You yeah. mean by the time it would be the same and uh, the perfect relationship, right? Well, what do you mean by that, the perfect relationship? I mean, for example, I have uh, the best model in my mind that was made by the last woman in my life. So I would like to, if I'm going to have a relationship, I would like to be that, I would like that relationship to be exactly the same. I mean, not exactly the same, to make me feel the same, enjoy uh, from being in contact with that person. I mean, sexual relationship or emotional or even um, having fun moments with each other. But what you said really worried me. Well, I mean, this is what what I mean is that I want you to obviously feel good in your relationship. But even when you tell me this last relationship was was perfect or how you want to feel, you know, what concerns me is that there was so much not right about the relationship. I'm sure there was things that were right in how you felt about her that I'd want you to also not just look at it that I just need to be with that person, but they are single and available. I'm sure there are some things about her you would want in your next partner, but to also look at you know other things that might help you understand. Well, one thing that also comes to mind is you were talking about trust. And as much as when you were with her, you knew the situation, but unfortunately this is not likely going to make you feel like you can trust more when you were with someone that was in a relationship, right? That's already going to make you feel potentially more skeptical of the next person that, well, I know that people do this or this can happen. It might make you more afraid of that as well. So I'm sure some of the ways she made you feel, yes. But also, again, you were not in close enough connection with her or spending time in person with her enough to say that that's how you're supposed to feel. Because from a distance, it's very easy to let yourself feel certain things that might make you more anxious when you're up close. So you might meet someone and what you likely will feel with someone that you actually can be with in a long-term relationship is you might be more anxious and you'll say, oh, see, no, this isn't good. I don't feel right. But 
it could be that that is more right because there's the potential to go towards something that scares you. So that's what I meant by, it doesn't mean, oh no, the next person that's good for you, you're going to not like them at all, or it's going to feel opposite of the last person. No, but I don't want you to think that head over heels feeling or the way you got close to her was likely the right path that I'd want you to find in the next person. Because if they're available from day one, if they're the potentially right person for for you from day one, that'll also create some anxiety that might make you find reasons to, to sabotage it or end it. Because as much as you're saying consciously and telling me, I want to be married, I want to have kids, it's very clear from what you've also described, you're very scared of that same thing. And this is the hard part is that what we want and what we're scared of sometimes are the same thing. And we have to try to navigate through this, this complexity to find our way into a relationship uh, and create that kind of good relationship. So it's tough because you're the one that has to like the person. And I'm telling you in a way, don't trust yourself completely if you like the person. I know that could be tough and paradoxical, but you do have to to slow yourself down to make sure, okay, am I continuing my pattern? You know, Jung has this quote, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. So many people say, oh, it's just my bad luck. I keep meeting people that are this way. But it's because we're somehow attracting and being attracted to those people and creating relationships that are that way. So you've clearly shown when it comes to relationships, you can't just trust yourself to just go forward. You have to stop yourself and say, okay, am I doing, am I repeating the past in some way with this person? So uh, I, I guess that consciousness is only is only medicine for like uh, repeating all those uh, patterns, right? Well, I mean, yeah, but when we become aware of our patterns, if we're then conscious of them, we have a better chance of stopping them. They're very powerful, though, because what people will feel is like, no, I know that's my pattern, but this time it's different, for example. You know, it's kind of like yeah. when we use drugs, people find a way to justify using it again because it just feels so good. It just feels so comfortable. It's back to this place that we like to go to. And so to go away from it can be challenging. So that's that's what I mean is if you f- tell me, oh, I, I just met this girl and I think she's perfect for me, I would really want you, it's not just to be a buzzkill and make you not feel so good, to really slow down and ask yourself, like, really, what's what's going on here? And I would also encourage you, when you're getting to know someone, to take it slower um, and, and, and take your time, not let yourself just, like, fall too quickly for them, because that also can happen sometimes when we're feeling lonely. We want to just feel so connected that we don't connect, don't connect, and then when we find someone we think they're right, we just we think we should stop thinking and go 100% forward. And eventually we have to take those leaps, but we want to make sure it's at the right time once we've invested more time into the relationship. So, um, you know, going back to your thoughts when we started was that in a lot of these psychology and self-help books, they identify the problem, but the solutions are not clear. I could see that even in our conversation, some of that is true. And the the solution for you is not going to be so clear. It's going to be going into a certain direction. And uh, we just scratched the surface at looking at your own relationships and your past and what you've been through. If you haven't been through therapy, I mentioned that's something that a lot of the books will say, but I do encourage you to do that as I would encourage most people to do. Uh, as also another aspect of exploring these things that you and I talked about in this relatively brief conversation in a deeper level, because there's a lot there. Have you been in therapy before? Uh, actually, only uh, one time, and um, 
it was the first time he uh, started the SSRIs for me, sertraline. And uh, mm, it was really helpful, but it was not 100% scientific. It was like a philosophy, like telling about Rumi and uh, um, something like that. But it helped me. But, you know, here in Iran, I at least I think, and my friends also think, that there are not good therapists here. They only listen to you and... um, just uh, you know for one time I would like to break this cycle and mm-hmm. uh, to start a new life and uh, well I'll I tell you like what to... therapy is a lot of that even the way I'm talking you to you today although it, it's very similar in a lot of ways to therapy it's also different that most therapy sessions are more of listening and and you know than the, the back and forth we had although at times I did let you talk here as well in longer periods but there we will be some of that and it is slow and especially for you I would encourage you to if you see a therapist again and I would want you to do that to think of it as a long-term thing because I also want you to create a relationship with this therapist um you know we we're looking for a quick solution that I you know you want to go to a therapist and after once or twice they're going to give you the solution but really I, I could let you know it's probably very, very unlikely. I don't like to say black and white. That that's possible. It's going to be a process, and because of your challenge with relationships, one of the things that when they do research on therapy, they find is the most helpful is actually the quality of the relationship between the client and the therapist. Not necessarily if they did CBT or psychodynamic or different types. That relationship is a very healing part of the process. So. I would encourage you to look at therapy more of as like a relationship rather than I'm going to go to this person. Just like if you wanted to get in shape, you wouldn't go to a trainer two times and say, okay, I should be in shape now. You're, it's an ongoing thing. I have to keep working out to get healthier or stronger. So I would want you to look at therapy in the same way for yourself, especially because relationships are hard for you. I'd want you to find a therapist and create a relationship with them um, by seeing them regularly for some time. Uh, at least six months, uh, to that itself will be helpful for you. And uh, should that a therapist be a man? Because um, I've heard that like uh, having uh, a woman for a man is may cause some problems. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say. I don't think it has to be. I'm I'm a therapist myself. I see, you know, male, female, and also non-binary clients. So I don't see it as it has to be that way. Um, I think, you know, for you, from what you described, I think that can be good because I, I don't want you to look at the person in a romantic way or for that to come up, and it can, but a good therapist will also handle that. So I don't think it has to be that way. If you find yourself more comfortable one way or the other, I would want you to look at that and make that decision. I wouldn't say I, you have to see a male therapist, though. Yeah, I have uh, two uh, brief questions. So let me, and... if we, we're actually way past the commercial break. I was seeing if we would uh, yeah. wrap up, but I don't want to uh, uh, stop you from asking those questions. So we'll go again to commercial break and we'll talk in a few minutes, okay? Thank you so much. Sure, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to the caller with before the break. Caller, are you still there? Uh, yeah, doctor, I'm here. Okay, and I know before the break you said you, you had like, I think, two more questions so i want to make sure we got to those yeah thank you so much sure uh actually to be honest it was really interesting for me that you uh how you discovered 
that uh, I like being lonely mm. and at the same time having a relationship which is sure that I'm not I am with someone while I'm not mm-hmm. so my question is for that you said that in my childhood I uh, I was uh, I didn't I choose to be alone so uh, why is that because I've been uh, because the fights of my parents because uh, the bad feelings that my father gave me or I would like to know why I choose to be alone mm-hmm. now well it, and it's probably a combination of those things and it wasn't at a, as a child that you necessarily chose to be alone but that you felt alone or also that it might have felt more comfortable or safer to be alone so if our relationships are causing us pain or if uh, being close to people is causing us pain it's safer to be alone but then of course that has its own pain which is kind of what you're experiencing now which is that if you're feeling alone it feels really bad it doesn't feel good but then when you're feeling close you get anxious or brings up its own things and so you stay in this in between and another big dynamic here is control because when you're alone and you do the things you do you mentioned porn but there might be other things that you you know how to take care of yourself or you stay in these casual types of connections where you might feel more in control or there's less to lose we can see that control might play a big part in how you're choosing to make your decisions you were mentioned that anxiety is something that you have you noticed it yourself it became worse lately but also in the mmpi you said that was something that showed up and so when anxiety is basically the sense of having a hard time with the lack of control so we try to get control of the things that we can but sometimes we we go to a place where we try to control things that we need to let go of and relationships it doesn't mean that we just let anything happen of course we play our part and we're responsible for what we can be responsible for but at some level we have to let go of control or some degree of control in order to be in a good relationship so you might have found that because of what you experienced as a child unconsciously you learned that it's safer to be alone and then to try to control things as much as you can so even when you have a relationship that's more distant there's more control there there's less of a feeling of being out of control and so what you're going to have to do is risk being more out of control or maybe that sounds bad out of control sounds like you're just being reckless but i mean being less in control or not controlling what's going to happen um, by letting someone get close to you by letting yourself get close to them by slowly sharing your, your feelings with them and, and vice versa and realizing that i can't control this but if it's what i want i have to trust enough and let go enough to allow myself to get close to someone exactly because in my relationships uh, i tend to control my partner mm. like um, being a bit selfish and for example uh, asking for proofs for example where are you now mm-hmm. in order to see if she lies or not send me some pictures or um, for example uh, talk to me now i want you to be awake although you're tired or when it comes to intercourse i take the 100 percent control <coughs> so uh yeah that's mm-hmm. uh true but it is it's still not uh, clear maybe i should listen to our conversation once more after the call or uh, maybe it doesn't help me um now 
to understand it why I tend to control people uh, around me and uh, I well let me say answer. yeah sorry go ahead no actually finish that thought go ahead yeah and uh, I would like to uh, please answer it after my second question you said that uh, I need to be <coughs> alone uh, for a few time so the f uh, how much how long should I be alone and uh, it's like a, a treatment to uh, my patterns my traps well or not necessarily and I can't give you a length of time and I'll, I'll try to address this one since now it's here and I hopefully won't forget about the the first one um, when, I, when I say about being alone and not necessarily that it's a treatment but that if we want to understand what we're feeling we have to take away the distractions and one of the for example one of the biggest ways people distract themselves now is with their phones they sit down somewhere, they're at home, or they just are scrolling through something. They check their phone, not because they have something to do or they really even really want to do it. It's more so they avoid what they're feeling. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is to let yourself feel what you're feeling, which means we have to take away some of these distractions that will get in the way of you feeling those feelings. Does that make sense? Including like um, not being in touch to, uh, like, friends? Uh, to no, and yeah, so I'm not saying I want you to feel alone or you have to feel lonely, but especially with those, the the dating or the people that you know, you're kind of using it almost like a drug because that's how it sounded like, you know, like, okay, I'm feeling lonely from the breakup. Let me just text four people and then one of them responds first and then I, you know, that kind of a feeling to me is like you're avoiding the pain. Even, you know, when someone goes through a breakup, I would encourage them to feel sad. Not that I want them to feel sad, but to let themselves feel sad. A lot of people think, oh, you're break, oh, don't feel sad. Go, yeah, you know, either sexually be with someone or talk to someone else or get drunk or do something. Don't feel bad because it goes back to this tendency we have to think, well, feeling bad is bad, so you shouldn't feel that way. When, when we go through something that's painful, we need to allow ourselves to feel bad. We can't just avoid the pain. That actually avoids the healing. So that's kind of what I'm looking at with you is that I don't want you to just avoid the pain. And so when you find yourself, okay, let me just text a few of these girls and just get in touch with them. Be aware of what might be driving that might be that pain. And I want you to actually go into that pain to understand it. Not that it's a treatment, but that we have to understand our pain to heal it. And we have to give space to that pain to heal it. But if we keep numbing it, okay as soon as I go through a breakup talking with multiple other people you'll never really get a sense of what that that pain is and what's going on for you and then also it's kind of like a hunger if we don't let ourselves feel hungry we won't, we won't go towards the right food so we have to let ourselves feel that emptiness to understand better and then go towards what we actually need yeah it's true and uh, so um I will let myself be alone and uh, to feel that pain and uh, for yeah so by I the way do you do you remember what we were talking about I actually lost track of what I was gonna say before I want to see if you can remind me in that first question, question you mean? yeah do you I, I, we were in the middle of it and I'm realizing I didn't give you the answer and now I'm forgetting what we were talking about no, I don't <laughs> if we both go back, we'll be able to hear it, and, and maybe I'll remember then, but unfortunately, it, it slipped my mind now. Um, but yes, go ahead. Uh, so, uh, I would like to know uh, what what will come to me after being alone. I mean, 
I know that it would break my pattern and mm-hmm. it would make my pattern uh, it, uh, weaker. So what after that? I mean, I will avoid going to um, that kind of attractive uh, and destructive relationships, but um, you mean by doing this, uh, in long term, I will uh, make that pattern weaker and it would go away and I can... Yeah, that would be part of it, but what I want you to also, again, it's like to understand what you're actually feeling, you know, what is there, what's, what's that loneliness, and then to go towards the better thing. So if we take away all the the junk food, you'll go towards the healthy food in some way, not to make it that simple, because that's not true you know, either afraid, case. For example, uh, I, I know a bit about that feeling. For example, when I see uh, very old people, for example, 98 years old in uh, my family, mm-hmm. and I see that uh, they beg to be uh, to talk to someone yeah. in that age, because there are not too many people around them. So I really hate that to yeah and I don't want when I'm for example 60 or 70 years old I don't want to be alone at all I want to have my children grandchildren around me so maybe I'm scared maybe I feel mm-hmm. empty inside and well well there's some level we have to accept you know again it goes back to loneliness and being alone even if you don't feel lonely you might be alone sometimes so if you even have kids then we let them go and do their thing we can't feel like well because i don't want to be alone i have to keep them close and people actually do that they keep their kids dependent on them or they create these kinds of relationships where they keep their kids close for their own benefit not for the kids benefit so that's also something to look at and that's why i'm saying it's not that if you allow yourself to be alone then you're going to heal all of these things. I also do want you to get better at tolerating being alone, but understanding that at times you withdraw from people too. So it might seem like a paradox because I'm saying um, let yourself be alone, but also don't get comfortable in that because the sense I get is that you seek out ways of not being completely alone, but not being totally close. And so I want you to cut out the ways of connecting with people in these more casual or ways that you know won't go anywhere and try to have more meaningful relationships where even if you're married and your partner is out of town for a day or two or you're not talking you won't feel you might miss them but you won't feel so lonely and empty because that connection is there and i think i remembered what we were talking about before you were saying why do i want to control people or you know partners and things like that and so in general as as human beings if we think of it in some way, we would all wish we can control everything, that I can't get hurt by anything, that things won't be unpredictable, that something bad won't happen to me, that something bad won't happen to my loved ones, that things will go how I want them to go. So we always have to to struggle or deal with this sense of we wish we can control things in our life, and there's so much that we can't control, and that can create anxiety, but we have to somehow come to terms with that, that, that we can somehow continue living even though that anxiety is there. And then so when it comes to our partners, because we can be so afraid of getting hurt, 
it's an understandable reaction, not a healthy one, to want to control them because then we won't get hurt, right? So if I know where you are, even though we can't control them, but giving ourselves that sense that I'm getting control. If I know where they are, if I know what they're doing, they can't cheat on me or lie to me or do these things. Even though it won't prevent those things, might even push them towards them, but we can't stop them completely. But what we don't recognize is when we try to protect ourselves, what we usually also do is prevent ourselves from experiencing something. So if you control your partner, yes, you might in some way think you're preventing them from hurting you, but you're also preventing yourself from really being close and having a nice relationship. Because if your partner is only sitting next to you because they can't walk out the door because you won't let them, that doesn't give you a good feeling at the end of the day. It'll give you some of this feeling where you won't feel alone, but you won't feel close either. And so the only way we can truly be in a loving relationship is if both people are not being controlled by the other one and are choosing to be there. And we have to trust that they will continue to choose to be there, even if we don't control them or force them to be there. And that's easier said than done. and might be easier said than done for you because you're, the trust that you brought up before is that you're possibly expecting they're going to go or that they won't want to be around you unless you control them. And so... That's also something you have to be aware of is not creating those patterns where you're trying to control the relationship or control them to stay close to you. Because even if you are with someone, even if you marry this person you described, you won't have a loving relationship because you will have a relationship based on force. And even, you know, in Iran, we see this with the laws that are there. You obviously will know it better than me that trying to control people and control women doesn't allow those people to live their life fully, to be actual citizens, actually be full human beings. Control doesn't work, and control just takes away something from that individual and from our relationships. It doesn't let us, quote-unquote, we might think we have them, quote-unquote, but we're not being with them. And that's really when we're talking back to the relationship aspect, what we'll need. So we can understand your desire to want to control, but again, by understanding it, you can recognize that it's unhealthy or it's coming from a, a feeling, but it doesn't have to dictate your actions, that feeling. It's going to be easier said than done for you because it's going to feel so scary to let go, but it's another way that you'll have to let go in order to be in a relationship that will be genuine and will be close. Yeah, it's true. I understand now, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, sure. Mean, mean, I mean, uh, meanwhile, your talk, you mentioned that the watching porn um, has some effects on uh, the relationship itself. Uh, I don't know what you mean by that. You said not only the... The uh, sexual, yeah. I mean, it could affect, so of course, the sexual part, but, and that's itself a big conversation that, you know, maybe I'll even discuss on other shows. I've talked about it before in some ways, but it can just impact the way we experience being close um, in not just sexual ways when we're, we're seeing pornography and seeing um, those actions and those behaviors that you know we would have with someone else in an intimate way, it can impact the way we approach closeness in general. So it's another way that people might get a sense of closeness, um, but it's not really the authentic thing they're looking for. And it also can affect what they think they're supposed to be looking for, especially in the sexual domain, in their sexual life. Um, and so it definitely impacts that. So I'm not saying that if you watch pornography, you'll have bad relationships and making it that clear, but that it can impact what we're, we're going to 
do in a relationship, but also, as you were mentioning, you go to it when you're feeling bad. So it's a way of comforting yourself, and as I mentioned, with complete control, which might give you that sense, again, that to be close sexually and in general involves control, and if you don't have it, it feels scary. So as much as porn might seem like a fantasy place, uh, it's a place where you have complete control of what's going on, which makes it actually not very out there and makes it very controlled rather than in real relationships where we can't predict exactly what the person is going to do and that might create more uncertainty more anxiety which we might avoid but it's really what we want to go towards yeah thank you uh, doctor I would like to uh, appreciate your time uh, I would like to ask a very short question uh, about 30 seconds of your answer well, how about uh, you this? You know what? I'm okay with wrapping up the show with you because we, we're way past the commercial break again, and I, it'll be a very short segment. So let's just, you know, we'll put you on hold and bring you back, and we'll sure. we'll end the show together, okay? We'll be right back. Welcome back. Okay, caller. Uh, hello. Yes, uh, go ahead. You said you had a quick question, and we'll, we'll get to that now. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm planning to immigrate to Canada or the U.S., but... Um, I'm. Uh, I will go there for continuing my education in um, my former field of study, linguistics. Mm -hmm. uh, but since I've been always interested in psychology and uh, uh, reading books and uh, you know following every topic about it, uh, I would like to ask you the question that um, is it good for me? I mean, for me as an Iranian. Uh, guy, young person, to study psychology in Canada or the U.S. and to uh, earn money to be able to like uh, make my life out of it, or you uh, like advise me to um, not to go that field for making money. Well, uh, you know, I know you'd mentioned it was going to be a, a quicker one, and I. I don't know if I can answer it quickly because um, to say I'm going to push your life in a certain direction, I don't know if it would be responsible for me to say to do one thing or the other based on what you know you said in the limited time we have left. So, of course, switching fields, I'm not against that, but it can be tough when you're already immigrating on top of that. As far as making money um, in the field of psychology, uh, you know, Typically, a therapist, you, you can make, there's a lot of potential to make money, but I wouldn't say go into it because it's so lucrative or you make so much money easily, especially at the beginning. You know, let's say you go to school, you're not going to be licensed. And if you go to school, let's say you get a master's degree, two years at least. If you get a doctorate degree, four to five years at least. Um, and then you're not even licensed when you, you come out. And so it takes some time to then even... To get licensed takes a year or two, and then to build a practice if you're doing private practice or you can work places, of course. So if you're asking me from a financial standpoint, it's not that I would say, yes, come to America or come to Canada, study psychology, and you'll be making very good money soon. So if you're just asking about the financial, um, you can, but it will take some time before you will be able to earn a steady or significant income. Yeah, I understand. As far as linguistics goes, what type of careers would be possible? And are you are you thinking of staying in Canada or U.S. or going back to Iran? Uh, no, I would like to stay. My sister okay. is already in Canada for one year. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe I would choose um, Canada because she's 
there and she would be there but um you know um i would love this is the topic that i really love i won't get tired of um psychology mm-hmm. so that's why i'm asking this question yeah well yeah i mean that's of course very important whatever we choose to study but then choose to do as a career we want it to be something we're very passionate about maybe it's not to the same degree but what is your passion for linguistics uh, actually i love languages and i love i love teaching and i used to be a tour guide here and i know french a bit arabic english and persian as mother tongue so um i love all of them and uh, besides that i don't know if the psychology is the first one or the uh, linguistics is mm. the first one but i think it's psychology okay i'm not sure well yeah. you know as i said i want to be careful not to push your career one direction or the other in this limited end time especially you know one thing i'll say is we talked a lot about commitment also or trust and other issues but commitment when it comes to relationships we also have that in our careers and it doesn't mean that once we pick a track we have to stick to it and we shouldn't change but we do want to be mindful of putting our work in a certain direction because if we don't then we're going to take three steps this way four steps that way we might not end up very far so it's just something to be aware of that if you do choose even let's say psychology that maintaining that for some time will be good but as I said, I, I want to be careful not to tell you to either study it or not. Uh, you s- seem to be passionate about it. That's very clear. But it's not clear for me if it's a, you're passionate because it's the right thing to do or because you've studied it in a more, you know, on your own way and it's more casual. So it's been more fun than the linguistic side. So I would want you to reflect on that more. And I, as I said, I would be careful not to give you a clear direction either way uh, because I, mean, I don't know. I my question only was about uh, the uh, financial part and mm-hmm. for me as an Iranian uh, therapist, do you think I would mm, make, uh, I would uh, be able to work in the uh, field or because I'm Iranian yeah. and psychology is about communication, uh, known sure. culture, so having uh, the knowledge of cultural background, so for example an American may, may uh, I don't know, I'm not sure, may prefer to see an American therapist because yeah. he has deeper knowledge of culture. Sure, they, they might, you know, uh, yeah, and you know, going back to even when you were talking about going to therapy yourself, uh, one of the most important factors is we want to feel like our therapist understands us, they get us, mm-hmm. um, which can mean lots of things, including our, our culture, because that could be a big impact on relationships, how we do things, what's, you know, considered healthy or not healthy in our culture, expectations, gender roles, all all sorts of things. And so, it, you know, likely people that would feel more comfortable with you would have some way of feeling that you would get them. Now, it could be someone who's Canadian or American, but it also could be, let's say, Iranians who now live in, you know, Canada or America. And so it would be something to be aware of. Even, you know, my clients, although I was born in the United States, majority of my clients are of Iranian background. And so there is a sense of even people will say, I like that I know you know the American culture, but you also know the Iranian culture. So I feel like you'll understand me. So what's going to be important is that if you, you come you know, here, and if you're practicing as a therapist, first of all, you'll be here for several years before you'll be doing that. Um, but that you'll likely find that you'll you'll match even better with clients who are Iranian or maybe Middle Eastern or something where they feel that you get their culture and somehow 
that connection will be there. So I wouldn't say you can't be a therapist here. That I wouldn't say that. I do think, as always, for any therapist, they will be a better match for some clients other than, and not as good of a match for others. I don't think there's such a thing as just a pure good therapist that's good for everyone. It's about the match. So I wouldn't discourage you from that because I think you would find um, people that you would you know, be able to help. Likely would be people, I think, that would be Iranian, especially you would be a, a wonderful therapist if you studied it, let's say, for someone who's Iranian living in one of those countries who maybe even would want to speak Farsi. I, you know, that happens in my sessions as well. That would actually be very valuable. And knowing multiple languages can be helpful because people do want to express their feelings in their mother tongue. It's very important. So um, I wouldn't discourage you on those grounds. I don't know if it's the right field for you. And, and as I said, I wouldn't want to push you in either way because of our our you know, the shortness of the time now, and we do have to wrap up now. But um, yeah, that's, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I do appreciate you calling. I'm glad we got to talk for a longer time. I uh, appreciate you staying up late there. Now it's early morning, but wish you all the best. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hulaku. It was very, uh, like, interesting um, talk for me, and I didn't expect it to be this uh, interesting for me oh. in the first place <laughs> and uh, you're very generous about your time and uh, you're very knowledgeable it helped me a lot and i'm going to uh, listen to this conversation Wonderful. a few times again thank well, you i don't mean to cut you off just because of the timing but i appreciate you again reaching out and we got to talk i enjoyed it as well again wishing you all the best and maybe we'll talk again soon take care Thank you so much. Sure. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.